Dr. Niels Herrett, retired professor of chemistry at the University of Copenhagen, talks with me today about the science behind the destruction of the three skyscrapers on September 11, 2001. At least three kinds of energetic material were being used for taking down the Twin Towers. Explosives, we do not know what that is. Thermate, cutting the steel beams, we may, we have, we do know the chemistry of that. And the nanothermite, this is what I believe, which served for ejecting the steel beams to a huge debris field. Right. In contrast, Building 7 came down into its own footprint, but the towers were blown up in a, in a huge area. According to Dr. Herrett, the science needed to refute the official 9-11 story is no more complicated than that known by Galileo and Newton. It's time for Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. Stay with us, if you dare. For the Pacifica Radio Network, the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. The official report on the Twin Towers do not cover the collapse. There is no official account, technical account, for the collapse of the World Trade Center Twin Towers. Believe me, I, I will be happy to send to you the footnote number 13 on the bottom of page 82 of the NIST report, where they admit this. They call chapter 6 the probable collapse sequence, but chapter 6 does not cover the collapse. And it's uh, four or five pages. It's the most important footnote, in my mind, in, in mankind after Second World War. World War II. This is the text of footnote 13 from the NIST, that is the National Institute of Standards and Technology report on the destruction of World Trade Center Towers 1 and 2. Here's that footnote. The focus of the investigation was on the sequence of events from the instant of aircraft impact to the initiation of collapse for each tower. For brevity in this report, the sequence is referred to as the probable collapse sequence, although it does not actually include the structural behavior of the tower after the conditions for collapse initiation were reached and collapse became inevitable. Footnote 13, that was mentioned by Dr. Herrick. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. There are precious few in the world who have the courage of the legendary biblical Daniel. These are those willing to stand up to the lies of the powerful with the tools of their trade, science. They risk ridicule and dismissal for facing power and propaganda with actual evidence. If humanity is to survive, it will be because of this courage. Today, I speak with Dr. Niels Herrett, Associate Professor of Chemistry at the Nanoscience Center, University of Copenhagen, first author of Active Thermitic Material Observed in Dust from the 9-11 World Trade Center Catastrophe. That was published in the Open Chemical Physics Journal in 2009. Welcome, Professor Herrett, to Progressive Spirit. Well, thank you, John, for the nice introduction, and it's a, it's a pleasure and honor to be with you on the show. Can you tell me about your work at the University of Copenhagen, how long you've been a professor there and your area of expertise? This is uh, almost seven years ago, actually, I retired from the university after about 40 years of service as uh, an associate professor of chemistry. And uh, I basically, if it has any importance to your listeners, I, I was trained originally as an organic chemist and eventually became 
that is chemical processes with light. And gradually I moved into physics because photochemistry is a, is a border discipline between physics and chemistry. And I actually ended up at the, the Niels Bohr Institute of the um, University of Copenhagen studying very fast processes with time-resolved x-rays. It's, it's a little special, but it is actually the beginning of chemistry. These are processes on the time scale of one billionth or one billionth of a second. So it's very, very fast processes. The chemistry involved in, in, in the 9-11, what, what happened on Manhattan on 9-11, is not particularly complicated. Well, we're going to talk about that uh, as as we move along, but yeah. So yeah. tell me how uh, how you decided to uh, uh, to take on this uh, most controversial, <laughs> one of the most controversial issues of our time, the events of September 11th. Well, this more or less is a, is a torch which uh, somebody gives you uh, or destiny, and uh, you actually get in you get involved. My story is not very different from millions of other people because on the day and the day afterwards, I didn't think much about it. Uh, and uh, I maybe I accepted that this was uh, actually that there were terrorists who could hijack airlines and uh, they smashed into the Twin Towers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it wasn't before 2006 when I accidentally saw on a DVD Building 7. And this was shocking <laughs> for a natural scientist because uh, I simply couldn't understand what I saw. This, this was a presentation given by Professor Stephen Earl Jones at, uh, in Utah at the... Um, his university down there, and um, and he showed Building 7, and it was shocking for two reasons. As I've told you already, as a scientist, I've been trained all my life to understand, or to try to understand, what's going on around me in the physical world. But here was a building which apparently just collapsed for no apparent reason at all. And I had to push the button 10 times to make sure that I did see what I saw, which is actually the key in understanding 9-11. It's whether you can see what you see. And second, the fact that I had never heard about this third skyscraper collapsing on World Trade Center implied that the people who decide what I'm supposed to know decided that I was not supposed to know this. And that, th this hurts. And I'm, I'm sure Francis sure has uh, told you about what happens when you try to neglect the other, other world. And usually you'd say, well, here is something which maybe I should not look more into. Because this is, I have a feeling that this is painful. Because it is deceit. When the people who are supposed to take care of you, whether they are politicians or, or journalists, when they're deceiving you, it hurts. Maybe it's easier for me to get angry as well. But nevertheless, I try to put it away. And this is what most people do. And in my experience, it takes about four or five weeks to accept that we have been deceived. Uh, in my case, at least, it took me a month before I realized that I had to go back. And this is just the way I am made. Uh, so, and, and it differs from person to person, but I knew there was no way going back. I had to look closer into this, which I did. We are in 2006. And... Um, over winter, I learned a lot more, saw some videos, read some books. David Ray Griffin's book, books are, his first book is, 
is mandatory for evolution of the whole 9-11 truth movement. And in, in the early 2007, I have more than 60 scientific papers under my pen, but I have never written an essay for a newspaper. I, I tried this. My, in my experience, when this happens, if you get through to the printed <laughs> newspaper, it's always a mistake. In this case as well, it was a slip. But nevertheless, in March 2007, I had an essay in a Danish newspaper, which was completely neutral in the sense that I just pointed out, look, here are, there were two airliners, but there were three skyscrapers. And whoever can count the three must get a feeling that there is something wrong here. And the way it comes down is uh, not compatible. You say gravity alone should do this. And so according to basic scientific principles, uh, this was taken down by controlled demolition. This was all what it was here. I, I, I didn't point any fingers. I have never pointed any fingers, actually. And uh, I was, <laughs> I would not say young, I'm 72 now, but at that time, t 15 years ago, I thought that like Speaker's Corner, you know, in, in Hyde Park in London, if you, I believe that if you step up onto a soapbox and tell the truth, uh, it will run on its own. I, I thought that. And many people think that if you speak the truth, if you're a whistleblower, eh, the truth will take on its own course. After I had this in a fairly important Danish newspaper in 2007, absolutely nothing happened. Zero. Nothing happened. Complete silence. And I mean, <laughs> I thought that I would be, this would be like, in, you know, stepping in an anthill, but nothing happened. So uh, over summer, I realized that I had to put a presentation together. And I'm, I'm good at that. You know, I've been teaching for 40 years at the university and I can address an audience. So I started doing that in, uh, in summer 2007. And maybe we should finish that track because this is what I'm doing. Yeah. So, uh, and to that, and you were still at that time uh, at the University of Copenhagen as a professor, correct? That's correct. So, uh, how, how did your uh, colleagues or the university react to this? Dead silence. But um, but when I started giving presentations, and at the university, you know, at the university we're having seminars and we're, we are having conferences and symposia and PhD defenses and master degrees and everything is being is being presented and defended in a room of peers, what do you say, in in Plano. Okay? And and this is is ongoing three two, three times a day at a at a major in, institute. So what I did is I put a poster in the elevator, you know, say I'm giving a talk at this and this auditorium next Friday at that and that time. And, uh, and this was about still basic physics and chemistry. And when this had happened three times, two times, my boss, that he forbid me to give more talks at the university. So the third time it had been announced already at that time. I had to stay outside the auditorium and tell the people who came to listen to my presentation, say, I'm sorry, but Michael don't want me to talk about this. Um, and he actually also forbid me to give talks in the public domain. And then we had, to, I had to look into, but it turned out that, of course, we have freedom of speech. and. But I didn't want to rock the boat, so we made a kind of compromise. I did not say that I came from the Institute of Chemistry. <laughs> so he would not be embarrassed by my, my activities. It, it was a bit tense, and I, I, will, I don't like going too much into details, 
of what happened behind uh, behind closed doors. Uh, but uh, and my departure was a little muddy. Uh, but uh, I was 65 when I finally terminated. And then, of course, I have I can still go there absolutely. But and but maybe be looking in the rear mirror it maybe it was a good choice because the nanothermite paper came out in April 2009 and at that time my agreement with the university was already settled and I knew that this paper was in printing but my boss didn't uh, and maybe so maybe that was um, maybe that was um, say helping along for me to take that decision. Niels, I knew that I knew that hell would break loose when it came out. Yeah, and it did. Niels Herrett is my guest, a distinguished Danish chemist uh, from the Department of Chemistry, University of Copenhagen, retired. And in 2009, uh, you wrote that paper on nanothermite. So let's talk about that. Talk about your discovery of nanothermite. Um, what is it? Uh, kind of a basics here. What is it? How did you find it? Well, uh, there are there are nine authors on that paper, and and the big credits should go to Professor Stephen L. Jones from. Brigham Young University in Utah, because he started this research uh, in 2007. And I was brought in, actually this team was brought together in early 2008. So it, it is, represents more than 80 months work before it was finally published in 2009. And uh, the object of this paper is um, the World Trade Center dust, as the Americans call it. it. It is really more like powder. But uh, if you want to call it dust, well, let's go along with that. And because if you take a closer look and um, under a microscope and do some tricks to get these chips out, uh, these are less than a millimeter long. They're very small. You have to find them under a microscope and use a magnet to separate them from the bulk of the dust. They're red on one side and they're gray on the other side. And it's the red side which is interesting because it turns out when you when you heat these chips, they react. I don't believe that it served as an explosive. And I usually I do not use that word. But when you heat it up, it reacts violently. Let's say, put it this way. And it forms elemental iron. And that is the fingerprint signature of what we call a thermitic reaction. And that's why the material is called thermite. This was a chemical reaction which was discovered by a German chemist called Hans Goldschmidt in 1893. He published that when you mix very finely grinded aluminum powder with, say, rust powder, let's call it rust, the chemical term is iron oxide. Then there are many, many kinds of iron oxide. And if you, if you have a problem with, with that, let's call it rust. So it's pulverized rust and pulverized aluminum. Mix these two powders. And if you can make them react, what you get is a very violent reaction. And in that reaction, elemental iron is formed at a temperature of 2,500 degrees centigrade. It's very, very hot. 1,000 degrees above the melting point of iron and steel. It's a very useful reaction because uh, you can use it for welding. I would bet that most of the iron rails on the American prairie has been welded by this thermite reaction. But it could also be used for military purposes because the iron coming out of it, being so hot, can destroy typically armor. Now this is, classical thermite is an incendiary, which means that it 
can destroy other things by means of heat. While an explosive is a chemical reaction where a gas is evolved very quickly, so you get a very high pressure, very fast, and you literally knock things apart. So this is a mechanical destruction, while an incendiary is using heat. Now, this is about the thermite reaction. But what we saw here, these tiny, tiny, tiny chips, we have shown that elemental iron is formed in the process. The material is prepared by nanotechnology methods, which uh, we understand very well. We cannot reproduce the exact same material, but uh, we, we are getting close. And a colleague of mine, Kevin Ryan, who also is a chemist and a co-author of this paper, has prepared nanothermite according to a recipe from Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California. And uh, it uh, works the same way. It is not an explosive. Many people believe this, uh, and, and, um, but it's, it's too simple. But the point here is that if you, both incendiaries and explosives are both energetic materials. And in between, you have rocket fuel. The technical term is a propellant. So while an explosive is giving pressure very quickly, rocket fuel is more giving more slowly than an explosive, obviously, because otherwise the rocket would explode. And that's not the point of <laughs> rocketeering in rocket fuel is supposed to burn from from the surface but still and de and develop a gas so you have a pressure lifting up the rocket so it's an intermediate between an incendiary and an explosive so how was it then uh, how how would you understand that it would have been used uh in these uh um in the world trade centers well, first, I would have advised anybody who, who think about this to look. To look actually what is happening Well, when the Twin Towers are collapsing. You know, the Twin Towers and Building 7 are two completely different stories in terms of how they are being demolished. Building 7 first is more classical, if you would say, demolition because this is being taken from the bottom up. And this is what you do when you demolish, when you pull a building, because you're making, taking maximum advantage of the gravity. Um, but the Twin Towers are being blown up from the top down because it had to be correlated with the impact of the airliner. Because... That's the whole point of the whole operation, isn't it? That we should believe that the airliners was the cause of it all. Right. And they, they weren't. So if we, maybe we should take the Twin Towers first. Would advise anybody to do is to dare to look. Now, this is, this is the third time I'm saying this, but this is really the point. To dare to see what you see. Because what do you see? Do you see gravity working? No. Allow me to introduce Sir Isaac Newton. I'm supposed that you are familiar with his existence as a mm -hmm. British physicist in the 17th century. And the most famous book in science came in 1687. And it contains the three laws of motion. Newton's three laws. The first, Newton's first law says that an object moves in the direction of the force. This is very simple and should be obvious to everyone that if you, if you push a trolley, it moves away from you. If you pull the trolley, it moves towards you. The object moves in the direction of the force. Now, gravity has the property of being vertical. Gravity can only make an object fall vertically to the ground. So if you see, when you're watching, 
the destruction of the Twin Towers, anything moving not vertically, sidewards or upwards, this is not gravity at work. And the official story is that all three buildings was gravity only collapses, irrespective of what was preceding the event. It doesn't matter the least talk about airliners, jet fuel, mechanical disruption. It doesn't matter. According to the official story, it is only gravity at working. But when you see the Twin Towers collapsing, it's, it's a mushroom of objects being thrown up and out. And these are girders, 15 tons hurled 100 meters away from the towers, fractions of four tons being hurled 200 meters, 600 feet. It's a tremendous forces at work here, and they are not gravity. I am speaking with Dr. Niels Harrett, who for 40 years was a chemistry professor at the University of Copenhagen. He's speaking with me about the science behind the destruction of the three skyscrapers on September 11, 2001. This is Progressive Spirit, ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schock. Stay with us. Listening to Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. My guest is Dr. Niels Harrett from Copenhagen, Denmark. We're discussing the science behind the destruction of the three World Trade Center towers World Trade Center Towers 1, 2, and 7 on September 11, 2001. What I'm talking about here is pictures which have been seen billions of times, billions of times. of Everybody on this planet has seen the collapses of the Twin Towers. Everybody has been watching this. And nobody, well, we are not very many typically old scientists pointing at this. Maybe I'm the only one saying this so simply. But architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, there are 3,000 architects who know this. What I'm saying here is so basic that ordinary scientists, they don't, it's not worth mentioning because it's so obvious right. that what you see here is not gravity at work. There must be something else. And these are explosives. Only explosives can do the work of hurling steel beams 100, 200 meters. And then maybe we should go a little into detail here because the thermite reaction I told you, between aluminum and rust produces elemental iron and aluminum oxide. This is the, are the two products of the thermite reaction. Now, aluminum oxide is white. And if you go back after this interview and take a look at the collapse of the Twin Towers, what you see is that all the fragments being ejected from the Twin Towers they draw after them a completely homogeneous white smoke trail. This is not concrete. If you throw concrete out the window, it will not draw after it a white smoke trail or wallboard. No. There is an ongoing chemical reaction which produces this white smoke trail. And this, in my opinion, and this is, here you are watching the nanothermite at work. Okay? Okay. It's a, and it will not be correct to call it an explosive. It will not be correct to call it a propellant or rocket fuel. It's in between. And this is the blessing of nanotechnology, that you can actually tune the energetic material to 
what you want it to be. You can make, you can make really nasty explosives uh, from this technology. Or you can make it a propellant and a rocket fuel. You can tune the material. And this is, in my opinion, what happened here. Now, to fulfill the picture, because this, the steel beams were blown apart partly by explosives. And we do not know, I want to emphasize this, we do not know the nature of the conventional explosives which were used, or they may be thermitic. We do not know this. Explosives were used. And I repeat, explosive is a chemical reaction which acts by means of force. It knocks things over. But at the same time, and this has been demonstrated by some uh, researchers from Worcester Institute of Technology. His name is Jonathan Barnett. That investigations on, on the steel beams proves that another kind of thermite was acting, cutting the steel beams over. It's called thermate. Usually when I'm giving my presentations, I do not have time to speak about that. But that's the military version of thermate when you want to cut a steel beam. You mix in sulfur and another agent called barium nitrate. They're different opportunities. But you can make a mix which cuts through steel beams like a hot knife through butter. And this has been applied at least partly to some of the steel beams of the World Trade Center. So it is, it's a very complicated and actually not uh, uh, instantaneous action taking down these uh, these high rises and it is uh, a, a wonder in 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 the science of engineering these are one of the wonders of the world i mean it's so brilliant executed brilliantly it's a masterpiece um but it's a bit complicated. So uh, as you may understand now, in my picture, and this is self-consistent, importantly, there are no contradictions in what I'm saying. At least three kinds of energetic material were being used for taking down the Twin Towers. Explosives, we do not know what that is. Thermate, cutting the steel beams, we, may, we, have, we do know the chemistry of that. And the nanothermite, this is what I believe, which served for ejecting the steel beams to a huge debris field. Right. In contrast, Building 7 came down into its own footprint, but the towers were blown up in a, to, in a huge area. To make it more uh, dramatic. And, uh, well, and this, this is actually a completely hypothetical question. We do not know. Yeah, but you, but you're right. Sure, it looked more dramatic. Another consequence is that you you cannot see what's going on under the canopy of debris. Mm. I mean, you it's very difficult to see what's what's happening in there. Right, right. Because you have this canopy of uh, of, uh, of girders and steel beams with these smoke trails after them. It's very difficult to see what's going on underneath. A third hypothesis, and this is purely hypothetical, is that maybe they had to get the weight of the tower, the rubble, out of what they call the bathtub. This is an issue for the engineers. But as I understand, the Twin Towers stood in what they call the bathtub. There were seven floors below sea level, actually. And the Hudson River was held back by a wall, uh, and which actually moved about a meter. And if that had broken, uh, all the basements of the southern Manhattan would be flooded. <laughs> Imagine what mm. that would mean to the world finance system. Uh, and in order to avoid that, this, this is a hypothesis of mine. In order to avoid that, you had to get such a tower, the weight of it would be 320,000 
metric tons for each tower, which they somehow had to move outside the bathtub to save this wall, which actually moved, but it didn't break. If, if, yeah. the, if the tower, twin towers, had collapsed within their own footprint, as uh, Building 7 had done, that would have mm-hmm. broken the wall with the river. Is that, is that right? It's yeah. my suggestion. But you, but you should talk about structural engineers about that. They know much more about it. If they didn't have this canopy of debris, everybody would could see that they were being... You, because then you would, could see the explosions in the tower. If you didn't have this, this canopy, that's one thing. And also to look at more awesome and spectacular, as you suggested, as you, that was your first thought. Right. Right. Because this was shock and awe. This was what it's all about, of course. Now, this, keep, I have yeah. a, a question about uh, the just a basic one, the nanothermite uh, found in the debris. Yeah. Uh, h- how was this dust collected? How do we really know it's from the towers? And is it accepted that this dust exists, uh, is from the towers, and is available to the scientific community for analysis? No, I'm... Well, to take the last thing first, I'm not aware of where you have good samples. Well, NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technology, <laughs> they should have it. I'm not aware of, because we used what we had. But what you are, are asking, uh, hinting at, is what the uh, chain of custody. Yes, that's what yes. I'm asking. Of, the, of this dust. And uh, when we started writing, you know, Professor Jones wanted to, to, to do this chain of custody very thorough. We, we actually had five samples in. But uh, it meant that each provider of these samples, these were private persons, signed uh, what you call a formula where they had collected it and eventually also gave a testimony, which was videotaped. And which means that, that we were very thorough on, on, on making uh, a chain of, uh, what do you call it, a solid chain of custody on each sample. And one of the samples, the fifth sample, uh, the person who brought us this, uh, he didn't want to, you know, stand up. So we took out all the, the results from that sample, uh, ending up with four samples which are the basis of this paper. Now, the funny thing here is that when we started writing, uh, Professor Jones wanted to use the first, I don't remember, three pages on this chain of custody thing. And I thought it was completely ridiculous. I mean, I have written scientific papers all my life. Never has anybody accused me or anyone else of falsifying data and eventually fiddling with samples. Why should anybody accuse us of, of, of making up these samples or anything? <laughs> but, but Jones and some of the other guys insisted that we had to do this chain of custody thing. So this is one, not the first compromise. Believe me, there were many compromises. So I said, okay, okay, okay. Let's use three pages on that. He was right. I was wrong. Because you're not the first one asking this question. But what you can do is just go to the um, to the paper and read the first three pages and uh, it's all in there. Yeah, uh-huh. so, so anybody could come uh, uh, these samples and, and analyze them again, right? No, 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 they're not there anymore. They're we not there. To. Okay. Our samples. But they, they should ask National Institute of Standards and Technology. They must have tons. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, my guest is uh, Niels Herrett. Uh, he's on Skype uh, with me from uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. Uh, you are also a member of the 9-11 consensus panel. And I was wondering yeah. if you could talk with me about that panel um, and uh, how it got started and, and what you're and what you're doing. Well, this is a wonderful thing. And I would you may probably have talked with David Ray Griffin about it already. Otherwise, I suggest that you invite uh, Elizabeth Woodworth from Victoria uh, onto your program 
and because she would re- she would really be the one who would uh, and she's better than I because she is she and uh, and David Ray Griffin is very central in this project. The point here being that that we are applying a method which is used in medicine called the Delta method. In this case, we have an official story saying that Mohammed Atta went aboard this airliner here. And what do we also have of evidence? What can we actually say positively? What is the best evidence? What the best evidence implies? What can we say? What can we say for sure? And this is why it's called the consensus panel, because all at this time, 23 members of the consensus panel, which spans a wide range of, of um, expertise. And we have 48 points now. Well, you know, the reason and I ask that is because that uh, is, many people will say, well, you know, well, the evidence is confusing uh, and they will never know. How could anyone know what might have happened or didn't happen? And yeah. um, but with the 9-11 consensus panel, it's uh, the evidence is direct. Yeah, and, and I believe me, a lot of work has been put into by all these 25 people to agree what can we believe and what what can we not believe and uh, so and it's very conservative you understand that this is not if we if we're not sure if we cannot say say did an airliner hit pentagon i mean this is something we said this we, we cannot decide on that so it's not there but we are still 48 points it's the best evidence what can we say within this 87% a uh, uh, level of of of, of security, okay. Yes. So yes. This, so and this is the method you use in in medicine. Like, uh, should we vaccinate against this or that? I mean, because this is the same kind of data they have usually, where you have to say what can we say and what cannot be said. So if you are, if somebody, where is the best evidence? <laughs> and that is the consensus pen. So Neil, and should, I'm very proud, actually. I'm very proud to be in that company because these are good people. Niels yeah. Herrett, my guest on uh, on Progressive Spirit, we're talking about um, the uh, World Trade Center, the 9-11 consensus panel. What, what has the panel decided uh, of consensus in regarding the uh, the destruction of the uh, three towers. Oh, they are controlled demolitions. It's, uh, this is so obvious. And uh, if you're taking Building Seven, for instance, we and we have to return to really fundamental laws of physics, as they was presented to the world by Galileo Galilei in 1593. Galileo and Newton. These are the people who should be brought forward as witnesses if we, when we talk about this. Building 7 came down in free fall acceleration. That is that the 47th floor of Building 7 is accelerating to the ground at the same acceleration. It's, the speed is not important here, but it's accelerating like a, a stone. If somebody had been standing on the 47th floor and dropped a stone at the, at the same moment he or she started moving, the stone would fall at the same acceleration, same speed, would reach the ground at the same time as the 47th floor. And this is Galileo Galilei in 1593 making these experiments. And uh, so that is how deep it is. Uh, in more physical terms, it means that there is no energy left for disrupting the steel frame. That all the, in, the potential energy of the 47th floor is used for a free falls acceleration. Then, and that means that there is falling as if there was nothing below it. And that means that there is no energy left for 
according to the official story. Okay, there's no energy left for uh, taking the whole steel frame apart. So we had to look for other sources of energy to make this work, taking the building apart, and only explosives and incendiaries can do that. And so it really... it's, so ob- it's so it's completely obvious, and there is no way around this conclusion. Yes, in, 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 and in so so and yet terms. and yet um, we don't believe what we see. <laughs> so I'm well, always amazed by that. That is the the, the psychology, uh, I guess yeah. you could say, behind that. You, you you talked about that when you gave your lecture um, in 2009 in Sweden. Um, that mm, yeah. uh, that we don't uh, that we just have a psychological block uh, given to us because of the trauma of the original uh, event and the story that was told to us. Yeah, obviously, but but uh, what regards Building Seven, very few people have seen it. I mean, I didn't see it before two thousand six, and that was a DVD, and the National Danish Radio has never shown it, as far as I know. It has been shown in some propaganda uh, productions from from BBC on Danish television, but I do I I'm very sure that. The, the National Danish Television, which is a public service station, we all pay a TV license to this. They have never shown Building 7. Because a child, you know, blind Freddy's dark can see that this is, uh, this is a, a, a controlled demolition. It's so obvious when you watch it. There are no fires. There were fires, but you don't see them when the building comes down. Now the NIST, uh, the NIST uh, National Institute uh, uh, for Standard and Technology is that is that what yeah. the and, and words are standards and technology. That's it. Yeah, they um, had an explanation for uh, World Trade Center Seven that was pretty um, well. What was it? Totally, the the building came down primarily due to ordinary office fires, and they put together like a computerized model. What what do you make of that? It's it's a scientific fraud. Well, the the, the, the computer modulation of, of the collapse, it, it doesn't even succeed. They can't even make the computers uh, do a simulation which fits the observation. Yeah, the model doesn't even go the whole way, right? It stops before actually right. the collapse. It, it stops because it gets too obvious that this is actually... And believe me, they have really tried their best to make it fit, <laughs> but it doesn't. But more important, I would say all this fiddling around and smoke screens and, and uh, writing completely ridiculous dead meat and hot air is the f- fundamental thing, and I, I'm embarrassed to point this out, but science is based on experience. Wow. That means that if you come up with a hypothesis, you have to point to similar situations where you have observed the same thing. And by claiming that these three high-rises should collapse due to fire, falls flat only, uh, falls flat for that reason only, that it has never happened before or since in the history of mankind that a steel frame high-rise has collapsed due to fire. It's as simple as that. It's, okay. It does, and because this is experience. This is experience. We have made the experiment. This is, I know this is a bit cynical to consider a, a high-rise fire as an experiment, but if we did, and we afterwards make the observation hundreds of times that a steel frame high-rise simply does not collapse due to fire. The thought could, could not be thought prior to 9-11. And still, the official narrative is that if this happened three times on the same day, you could make do make statistics on that, and that would be very unfavorable for the official story. Uh, David Ray Griffin calls it uh, a number of miracles, I believe, on that day. Ex- exactly, because it, it, um, it, it contradicts experience. It contradicts the laws of nature as we have experienced on a daily basis. So and that is w- what is defined as a miracle. That's true. 
it's, a, it's, it's an event which violates the laws of nature. And that is very, he's very wonderful man and very clear-sighted. Uh, let me point out one thing here. I, I mean, it, you told me that the National Institute of Standards and Technology, they actually have a collapse model for Building 7, but not for the Twin Towers. The timeline for 14,000 pages of report on the Twin Towers, their timeline stops when before the towers collapse. Did you get that? Their timeline is covered, the time from the impact of the airliner and to just before when it's ready to collapse. The official collapse, the official report on the Twin Towers do not cover the collapse. There is no official account, technical account for the collapse of the World Trade Center Twin Towers. Believe me, I, I will be happy to send to you the footnote number 13 on the bottom of page 82 of the NIST report where they admit this. They call chapter six the probable collapse sequence, but chapter six does not cover the collapse. And it's uh, four or five pages. It's the most important footnote in my mind in, in mankind after Second World War, World War II. <laughs> and I'll be happy after this interview to send you the fra the, the ex this footnote Yes, yes, I'd love to see that. Niels Herrett so, has been my guest on yeah. Progressive Spirit uh, from the University of Copenhagen, uh, talking about uh, the date of 9-11, September 11th, from the 9-11 Consensus Panel. Uh, Dr. Herrett, uh, th thank you so much uh, for your time, for being with me today, and for what you're doing. It, it has been a pleasure, and God bless You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net is my website. Catch Progressive Spirit weekly on several radio stations and via podcast. From the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, I'm John Shaw. Be well. Be well.